Welcome to Whole Reason, your source for thoughtful and balanced teaching on issues that Christians face. I'm your host, Dan Sinclair. Let's go. Welcome to Harvest Community Church. That was our wonderful worship team. And today I'll be delivering the third in a series, Fulfilling God's Call, Part 3, A Biblical View of Self-Love. God, we thank you so much for your presence here today. And we do honor you as the name above all names and the Lord of our lives. God, thank you that we can serve you, that we can hear your words. Open our hearts to hear from you. Not just the words that the preacher preaches today, God, but from your spirit, I ask you to speak to our hearts and teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. So, you know, when we think of our calling, a lot of times we immediately jump to, what are my gifts, what are my talents, what am I interested in? A lot of times we think that way, but as we've seen over the past two weeks, God doesn't really start there. And so this is our third and last part that we're going to work on, a foundational element before we actually get to how does God use my gifts and my talents and my desires. I want to review the last two parts just to show us where we've been. And then after this week, I think we'll be prepared to successfully move on to exploring our specific talents, gifts, passions, and interests. Yeah, remember in part one, which was called, If You Are Saved, You Are Called, we learned a few things about what God's calling is like. We learned from the call of Jeremiah. We learned that God's calling is based on his intimate knowledge of who we are. You know, that the call of God isn't some foreign thing that he forces on us from the outside like, you're going to Africa this week. And you know what? You might really want to go to Africa, and that's okay. In fact, I think that's awesome. But the thing is, is that his Spirit is working in us so that he wants to release from inside of us his calling, not force it from outside. It's based on his knowledge of who we are personally and what's going to make us happy and what our gifts and talents really are. We learn that his callings are greater than we could ask or think. But we also learn from the call of Jeremiah that it's going to require some separation on our part. Separation from sin, separation from bad influences, And at a certain point, God wants us to step up out of immaturity and into maturity. And it might be something as simple as leading a small group. That's a step of maturity. If you haven't done that before, there may come a time when God says, I need your help. It's time to stop being just a participant and maybe be a leader in some small measure. And that's great. In part two, another foundational teaching leading up to how we can fulfill our calling We learned about the principle of character before gifts. And that is that if we just focus on developing our gifts and our talents, we could build something really impressive and really be enjoying ourselves. But if we don't have the moral character underneath, we could lose it all in a time of temptation. We could be like a Kenneth Lay who built an Enron but couldn't withstand the pressure of, uh, of cheating and losing everything. We could be like one of these 
pastors or preachers that has some sexual immorality and loses their ministry because we didn't do things God's way. We didn't build first a foundation. We learned that God's foundations include starting with knowing him. Right? I mean, that's what the gospel is first and foremost about, is being restored to God so that we can love him and receive his love and enjoy him forever, as the Catholics say in their catechism. We're to be restored to God. Maturity requires fellowship. We talked about that part of this foundation is that we need to belong to other believers. In relationship is where we, where we mature, not as Lone Ranger Christians. And we also learned that spiritual disciplines are required for maturity. If we want to fulfill our calling, it's going to require maturity. And that requires us eventually, just like an athlete, to start training ourselves through regular study and prayer and surrender to what God teaches us. So that's where we've been. So today, I want to talk about a healthy view of self-love because I think a lot of people have trouble finding their calling, fulfilling their calling in the Christian church because we don't have a clear and biblical view of what self-love means and what it doesn't mean. And I just want to tell you about why this uh, is important to me. When I became a, a new Christian, I brought all my dysfunctions with me into the kingdom of God. They didn't all disappear when I accepted Christ. So all my perfectionism, all my desire to build myself into somebody important and powerful, those all just came along. But as God started deconstructing those and showing me, you know, that's really not what you're about, I, was, I realized I was building an idol. I wasn't really being true to myself. I was building what I thought was going to make me happy and feel successful, but it wasn't really based on what God had intended me to be. So as he started dismantling all those things, I started feeling like, well, then who am I? What, what am I supposed to be doing? And, I, and so I went on this quest for trying to find who myself, so to speak. And when I would talk to other Christians, they would say stuff like this. They would say, don't focus on yourself. Focus on God. They would say, serve others. Don't worry about yourself. God will work that out. And, you know, the problem with that is that it's a half-truth. There is a truth that sometimes if we become too self-focused and worried about our own things, that really what we ought to do is kind of go serve someone else and go focus on God a little bit. But there is also a right way in which we need to know ourselves and to care for ourselves. And that was the part that's missing. You remember when I talked about false teachers, we talked about that most profound truths appear in paradoxical pairs. So, for instance... The Bible says grace and truth met in Jesus Christ. Well, you know, grace and truth sound like opposite, opposite uh, principles. You know, where grace is about forgiveness and, and being gentle with others. But truth can be very demanding and truth can be very cut right to the heart. But they work together. That's how these doctrines work. Just like predestination and free will. How can they both exist? Can man choose his direction or does God just predestine him to one way or the other and he's helpless? Well, the truth is, both of those principles work together in reality. And if we abandon one or the other, we're going to be abusive. We're going to be teaching wrong doctrine. And that doesn't mean they're 50-50. Sometimes one should be emphasized more than the other. But in this case, what was happening to me was Christians were giving me a real principle. But because they had abandoned a healthy biblical view of self-love, they weren't giving me the answer that was going to lead me to health. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. The first point is that self-love is a prerequisite for loving others. Now, this large word prerequisite, most of us know from school days, but it means to pre-require. It means that 
self-love is something that has to be in place before loving others. And I want to use this quote from Jesus. Jesus was saying, the second greatest commandment is this, love your neighbor as yourself. He was assuming a certain type of self-love in this passage. Well, let me ask you a question. If I don't love myself very well, does that mean I get to love my neighbor the same way? If I hate myself, can I hate my neighbor? Well, I don't think that's really what Jesus was intending here. When he says, love your neighbor as you love yourself, he assumes a certain type of healthy self-love, and that's what we're going to explore today. All right, so if you love yourself poorly, you will love your neighbor poorly. The way you treat yourself, if you treat yourself with grace and truth, that's how you're going to treat your neighbor. But if you treat yourself unmercifully with truth, I guarantee you, you're going to treat your poor neighbor the same way. Paul, my neighbor's laughing, but Paul, I hope I don't treat you that way. All right. <laughs> um, here's point number two, and this is, I think, the centerpiece of what, of, of what we're going to learn today. And that is a biblical view of self-love must begin with a biblical view of the nature of man. Now, this is a, kind of sounds like a big idea, but let me, let me um, ask you a question. Have you ever heard this question? Is man basically good or evil? Well, anyone who asks you that question is almost always looking for an argument, first of all. So I'm not looking for an argument. However, the answer, the biblical answer to that question is he is both. It's not one or the other. Remember, we're talking about this principle of paradoxical pairs. One of the truths is that man is made in the image of God. He's beautiful. He's divine. He's like God. Right? We're creative like God. And there are other characteristics we could talk about. What does this mean? Made in the image of God. But let's just say that man is beautiful and made in the image of God. For instance, when you and I look at creation, when we look at the stars, when we look at the mountains, when we look at the oceans, we can go, whoa, God is awesome. Well, you know, we ought to be able to look at our fellow man and do the same. He was created just like all the stars. Well, why don't we do that? Well, because of the other side of this truth, which is that Man is sinful and broken and fallen and needs God. Now, what happens in reality is that people take one side or the other and they end up running with a heresy that's half true. They experience some success with that half truth and they think that's the whole thing. So, for instance, what a humanist will do, a humanist believes that man, he only emphasizes the goodness of man in his divine image. He, uh, the humanist believes that if given the right atmosphere... Man can be good, doesn't need God. Given the right environment, we can create a government, a society without God because the goodness of man is enough to carry the day. Well, there's a problem with that. Have you ever heard the expression, ultimate power corrupts ultimately? What that means is that if you give one man or one organization ultimate power, ultimately they will be corrupt. They'll abuse that power They'll abuse other people. You cannot give a man or an organization unlimited power and expect things to turn out well. Why is that? Is it because man is not good? Well, man is made in the image of God and beautiful, but he's also spiritually fallen, and that fallenness will catch up with him. This is why in our United States, we have a government that's designed on the balance of powers. If you don't remember your civics, the American government has three parts, right? The legislative branch, the judicial branch and the executive branch, and no one of them has all the power. Why did they design the government that way? Because they know if one branch has the power, they will abuse it. 
And this is based on a realistic view of man, that although we want to be optimistic and hope for the best, and we want to draw out the good in man, we know that man has a fatal flaw. But the the other side of this is just as bad. What I call unhealthy fundamentalists, not to be confused with the Christian fundamentalists who call themselves that because we believe that we want to focus on the fundamentals of the scriptures. And that's okay. There's a little confusion over that because some people use the word fundamentalist to mean something very bad. But the unhealthy fundamentalists only emphasize man's brokenness, his fallenness, his need for God, his sinfulness. In fact, they do that so much that they deny anything good can come from the natural abilities of man. They even go so far as to denounce education or intellect because man's intellect is corrupted by sin. Any art or music or science, a lot of times they frown on as, well, not really useful to God because it's part of the fallen man. You see, they've discarded man entirely and they only focus on man's wickedness and his need for God. Well, you and I both know that unbelievers can produce amazing works of art, of beauty, of music, of science. Why is this? This is because they are made in the image of God. That doesn't mean, as we've already seen, that man can be entirely good or beautiful or perfect without God. And we need to keep both of these in balance. You see, a church that emphasizes only the sinfulness of man ultimately can become a soulless, lifeless, automaton kind of place without the beautiful color of the created people that God has put in there, without the personality, without the gifts, the natural gifts that God gave to them when he created them. All right, so that's our second point, is that a biblical view of man's nature is essential for self-love because if you've rejected the created man entirely because it's so corrupted with sin that it doesn't matter to God, then you're not going to be able to appreciate the, the things that God gave you when he created you. I know there's some questions running around in your mind, and I think we'll get to them. Number three, biblical self-love is about stewardship. Look at the scripture that Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. You know, a steward is someone who takes care of someone else's property. And to some extent, you and I have been given our lives, our bodies, our souls, and our spirits to take care of them and to be responsible with them. That's what stewardship is. It's about being responsible. You know, when you make something with your own resources, when you go out and you buy uh, some things and you put it together and you make it, who's the owner of that thing you just made? You are. And you know what? God took his resources and he made us. And by that fact alone... He owns us. And this property we have, our bodies and our souls and our spirits, we need to take good care of them. Because ultimately, we don't just own ourselves, but we are responsible. And this is the other side of stewardship that I really want to talk about. Actually, let me go back. (coughs) Let me think about this. No, let me do this. Stewardship is about responsibility. I want to read a passage from you. You don't have it it there, and it was too long to put on the slide. But this is known as the parable of the talents. Now, a talent isn't like a talent we think of it. It was a measure of money or a measure of weight. And Jesus is giving a parable about the kingdom of God. And I want us to listen to this about how we are to be good stewards of what we are given. 
For the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country, who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. And to one he gave five talents, to another he gave two, and another one, to each according to his own ability. And immediately he went on a journey. Then he who had received the five talents went and traded with them and made another five talents. And likewise, he who had received two gained two more also. But he who had received one went and dug a hole in the ground and hid his Lord's money. After a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. So he who had received five talents came and brought five other talents, saying, Lord, you delivered to me five talents. Look, I have gained five more talents besides them. And his Lord said, Well done, good and faithful servant. You are faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of the Lord. He also who had received two talents came and said, Lord, you delivered to me two talents. And look, I have gained two more talents besides them. And the Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Then he who received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you had not sown and gathering where you had not scattered seed. And I was afraid. And I went and I hid your talent in the ground. Look, here, here's what's yours. But his Lord answered and said to him, You wicked and lazy servant. You knew I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. So you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I would have received back my own, at least with interest. Therefore, take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten. The one who knew how to be responsible with what he was given. For to everyone who has, more will be given. And he will have abundance. But from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the unprofitable servant into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's a very serious passage, and there's a lot in there. But what I want us to see about this is that God expects us to be responsible with what he's given. And the most precious thing he's given to us is not our money, and it's not our opportunities. It's our very own soul and spirit and body. We can't ignore those. We can't ignore self-development and think that we're honoring God because part of, who God, part of what God wants us to do is, is already pre-encoded into who he created us to be. And we need to be aware of what those things are. I want to give you another picture. Imagine someone comes and gives you an orphan baby. Now, if you love that child, what are you going to do with that child? Well, you're going to, you're going to observe them. You're going to look at what their personality is, what their talents and gifts are. You're going to try to guide them into, into activities that make them successful. You're going to try to uh, help them invest in whatever their gifts are so they become really excellent. You know, in the same way that you or I would receive a precious child and love and care for their souls and their spirits and their developmental growth, we ought to be able to receive ourselves, our own soul and our own spirit, and care for ourselves the same way. God calls us to be responsible and not just ignore ourselves because we have a mistaken doctrine that self-love is somehow selfish. There is an irresponsible self-love. There is a kind that's narcissistic and self-glorifying. We know that. But there's a healthy kind, and that's what we're talking about today. And 
That brings us to point number four. Self-love is about self-giving, not selfishness. Jesus said, Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. You know, the reason we invest in ourselves and develop ourselves is not so that we, people can look at us and go, Wow, you're awesome. And you go, oh, yeah, I am awesome. I did this all myself. Uh, it's not just to spend it on our pleasures, and it, but rather it's to have something worthwhile to give away. You know, I have a book about this. The book is not that good, but the title is great. It's called Find Yourself, Give Yourself. The whole reason we're being responsible in developing ourselves is not just so we can have people say, look at me, or <clears throat> But it's so that we have something worthwhile to give. Imagine if I don't take care of myself and I'm physically run down, emotionally and spiritually run down, and then I want to give myself into my relationship with my wife. What am I giving her? I'm giving her a mess. And it comes to the same when we're coming to serve others. We need to invest in ourselves and develop ourselves and be responsible. Why? So that we have something worthwhile to give away in service. That's the whole goal. So when the enemy comes to you and says... Stop focusing on yourself. You know you're just doing this for yourself. You can say, well, you know, maybe part of me is doing that, but my conscious goal is I'm doing this so that I can be responsible and so that I can give myself away in service. Don't stop investing in yourself because you have mixed motives. Don't stop because the enemy says to you, well, we know you really enjoy the praise. Well, we all kind of do. None of us is entirely pure. But that doesn't mean you should stop investing in your own soul and spirit, but rather you should continue working towards giving yourself away and developing yourself for the sake of self-giving. You know, as you mature, as we all mature, God increases our compassion. He increases our selflessness and he allows us to give ourselves away. So don't worry about being imperfect and why you're doing that. And actually in the next time, we'll talk about how do we deal with the impurity of our motives and our desires and what role does desire play in our calling. But that's next time. All right, here's point number five. Biblical (laughs) self-love involves a realistic view of ourselves, not thinking too highly or thinking too lowly. Let's look at what Paul has to say about this. For I say through the grace given to me, every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly. That means realistically. That means seriously. According as God has dealt to every man a measure of faith. You know, there's, this, um, there's been a kind of a whole disagreement. Uh, a lot of people in the church have had a problem with this view of, this view of uh, the word self-esteem. Well, what's wrong with self-esteem? When people say self-esteem, they want people to feel good about themselves. But you know, there is an invalid and a valid type of self-esteem. When we talk about, you know, I, I was reading the other day where There are some schools now where they don't want to give grades to children because they don't want them to feel badly about themselves. And, you know, I I mean, I understand where this is coming from. With my children, I want them to learn to feel competent. I want them to learn to feel like they can do it. But the problem is, is if they're lazy, if if they're not doing what they're supposed to do, I want them to feel a little negative feedback, a little negative pressure of feeling bad. Why? Because I like them to feel bad? Because I want to crush them? No, because I, I want them to change. I want that power to change them because valid self-esteem is based on doing good. I have a right to feel good when I have done what is right. That's really what good self-esteem is about. And when we have a realistic view of ourselves, you see, if, if we think too highly, if I think I'm better than I am, 
that's not right. I shouldn't really be feeling good about things that I haven't accomplished or haven't tried. We're to be people of truth. And the truth is, is that all of us have things that are praiseworthy, that are valuable in our souls and our spirits and even in our efforts. And we all have things that we could improve on. And a a healthy self-love is about thinking about ourselves realistically. So I want to ask you a question. Do you feel uh, badly when people compliment you? When somebody gives you a valid compliment for something you've done, can you say thank you and enjoy that? Not being selfish, but enjoy that because that's that's something that is truthful and honest and you agree with the truth? Or do you say, ah, nah, what I did was, that was really crappy. You know, you know don't tell me that. Um, you know, that's false humility. And that, what you're doing there is you're agreeing with a lie. Why are you doing that? Why are you doing that? Well, because perhaps because you haven't learned a healthy self-love, the kind that acknowledges what is true. That's not pride. That's acknowledging the truth. So think about how you receive compliments. If they're, if they're valid, you need to receive them with gratefulness and you get to enjoy them. If they're not valid, you might want to bring that up. You might want to say, you know, I didn't do that. Somebody else, you know, somebody else did that, but thanks. Um, you know, all these things bring into the... There's an opposing principle in Scripture which I didn't want to ignore, and that is the principle of self-denial. We know that Jesus said, whoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So how do self-love and self-denial work together? Because, well, let me say this. Self-denial does not negate self-love. Just because Christ calls to deny ourselves doesn't mean that self-love is an invalid principle. But let me show you some things about what biblical self-denial really is. Self-denial means... Denying ourselves the pleasures of sin. You know, the Bible says that sin is pleasurable. But also, there are many things that are pleasurable that God's given us that are not sin. Listen to what Paul says in Titus 2.12. He's instructing a young pastor. He says, the scriptures teach us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. That's part of what denying yourself is. That means saying no to sin. Here's what else self-denial means. Denying instant gratification and choosing God's timing and means. You know, if I'm really hungry and I don't have money and there's a loaf of bread on the window, I might be tempted to steal that loaf of bread. But God says being hungry is valid and wanting to get food is valid, but stealing is not. But a lot of times, we want instant gratification. We don't want to wait and do it the right way. Self-denial, in this sense, means choosing God's timing and God's ways rather than doing it instantly. Here's another facet of self-denial, biblical self-denial. Denying ourselves luxuries to reach the lost. You know, it's not a sin to have luxuries. It's not a sin to have a nice car. But as we grow in compassion, I can guarantee you that what's going to happen is you're going to want to reach others and to love others more than you're going to want some of the things you've always wanted. I may have always wanted a Mercedes. I haven't, but more like a BMW. Okay, let's say BMW. Um, I may have always wanted a BMW, 
But rather than spending $80,000 on a 7 Series BMW with all the little extras that come with it, you know, I may say, God, you know, instead, I want to own the Chrysler because there are people who haven't heard the gospel. There's a child that I could sponsor. You know, part of denying self is realizing that the luxuries of this world don't mean that much, and people really mean that much. So that's part of denying ourselves, is things that we may have always wanted, they may lose their value as, God, as we see what God really wants, and we start to align our hearts with him. And lastly, self-denial means abandoning our plans for God. You know, when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, Lord, I don't want this. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. You know, I think all of us want a nice long life. We want to live till 80 and have a million dollars in the bank and a nice homestead. But God's plan may require something different of us. I think about this Korean missionary this last week in Afghanistan who was executed. Right? He was serving his God. He was in his 20s, I think. And uh, I'm sure that wasn't his plan for his life. But he did deny himself to reach others. And I think that's really impressive. So although God wants us to honor our own hearts and our desires and our interests, he wants us to invest in ourselves. The whole purpose is for self-giving. And sometimes Jesus says to us, I know what you want, but follow me. Both of those principles are valid. So I want us to ask ourselves some questions. Have you received your own soul and your own spirit and your own body like you would a precious child to love, to develop, to invest in? Have you loved and nurtured your own gifts? Or have you abandoned them because somebody told you that you're supposed to focus on God and the specifics of your own soul don't matter? Will you invest in your own self for the purpose of self-giving? And when will you start giving yourselves to others in service and love? You know, um, when I lived for many years as a Christian, focusing on God and denying myself and mistakenly not really appreciating the things that God had given me, my life was very dry. It was very empty. And I remember the day I was out reading a book about a healthy biblical self-view, self-love, and all of a sudden, I realized that God was really interested in the things that I was interested in. He was really interested in meeting those desires. That The desires I had to do specific things were important to him. And I felt like my life suddenly flooded back into me because I'd spent years thinking that God didn't care about me personally. I kind of felt like he was concerned about who I was in Christ, but not who I was in creation that he wanted to kind of gut me of who I was and create this generic vessel into which he could pour his spirit and work in the world. And I found out that wasn't, that wasn't God's way. God's way is he wants to take the color of who I am and who he made me to be. He wants to take all the things that are broken by sin and hurt and wounds. He wants to raise the created person back up and clean me up and then pour his spirit out through me. That's very different. You know, there are things in my created man that I ruined, that sin ruined. And those things aren't good. God wanted to get rid of those, but he didn't want to get rid of me. He died for me, not just some generic empty vessel that he wanted to fill. And I think this is going to set us up and prepare us to continue 
fulfilling the call of God because who you are and who God made you in creation is a huge part of who he's called you to be in this world. And we're going to talk about who he's made us to be in Christ because he's going to take who you are in the natural and he's going to add on top of it who he is, his righteousness, his gifts, his spirit, his virtues. But he's not going to throw you away. He wants to heal you and me and use that. So, love your neighbor as you love yourself. I don't know if the band can come back up. And uh, that's our message for today. But, you know, if we start to embrace this, what's going to happen? We're going to have all kind of unique and strange things rising up. All the things that were suppressed, all the people's personalities that we didn't get to see. God wants to see those. And he wants to use those. He doesn't want us to be some generic Christian. Right? We're all different for a reason. We're all different and we're all beautiful for a reason. And so I hope that as we do this, we'll get to see you and more of who you are in in this church and in this body. That's the cool and exciting thing. So I'm going to pray and I guess then these guys will take it away. So um, let's, can we stand up and then I'll pray? I know you guys have been sitting for a while. Father, thank you so much that your word delivers us from darkness. Lord, that grace and truth met together in Jesus and that all the promises of God in you are yes and amen and that you don't throw us away when we're ruined by sin, but rather you raise us up and heal us. God, I ask so much that everyone in here who's denied themselves in a way that's hurt them, that's kind of thought that you didn't care about their soul. Lord, I ask you to come now and heal our hearts. It's a sad day when we've abandoned what you've given us because somebody told us that was the right thing. Lord, we acknowledge that we've sinned, we've ruined things, but I thank you, God, that you love us enough to raise us up again and to use the beautiful creation of each person's gifts and personality and talents. God, help us to appreciate one another that way. Help us to appreciate ourselves. God, I ask you to help me to appreciate my soul, my spirit, my gifts. I don't want to justify sin or the things that I built that you didn't build, but I do want to enjoy being who you created me to be. That's, that's awesome. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to the Whole Reason Podcast. You can find out more about us at our site, wholereason.com, or like us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash wholereason. And have a great, thoughtful week.